are you doing, Carl? Thanks for joining me one more time. My pleasure. How's everything on your end? Uh, very busy. Pre-Christmas rush. Yeah. I can imagine. I'm so sorry that it fell into this, this time of the year. But I've been looking forward to this chat for quite some time. So have I. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. I mean, you, you actually got me on a bit of a tangent. When, I, when we spoke the last time, you mentioned the inner screen hypothesis. You spoke about Chris Fields, Mark Levin, uh, sorry, Mike Levin, Mark Solms, all the names, all these people that you're working with. Um, not directly, but very indirectly, but a lot, a lot of you are working along similar projects. And it really took me in a bit of a rabbit hole. Eh? I started, I started going deep into it. I got Mike back onto the show. I got Mark back onto the show. So you're partly responsible for me having many round twos, and I think at this point it's only fitting that we have our round two. <laughs> okay. Remember, I I am the amateur here, so, so I'll be asking you what Mark or Mike uh, or Chris said. <laughs> so look, first of all. I was looking at your publications for 2023. You've published close to 100 papers this year. And my, my first question to you is, is this your average output per year? Because if so, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> yeah, 100 sounds quite a lot. Um, I find myself, uh, first of all, <laughs> uh, being a co-author on a paper doesn't mean to say that I have written the paper. So um, as you get older, you acquire more academic colleagues, more academic children, um, and to endorse their work and um, participate in you know, their pursuits, you're often invited to be a co-author. Mm -hmm. So my job is much more like an English teacher, marking people's papers. And I do that at the weekend, and I do about one or two per weekend. Uh, but this, you know, that, that includes revisions. So I would imagine about 50 a year would be the average uh, you know, if, if if I sort of do one new draft um, and one revision every weekend, that's about how. Yeah. I, I, how do you feel that? Does it impact your mental health at all, Carl? Does how do how do you manage this? Because that output, it's crazy. It's not just quantity from from my side, at least. It's quality. This is the type of work when I sit and read. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm in awe. Right. Well, it's, it's very gracious of you to say that. Um, but it's probably more a reflection of the academic circles, you know, um, in which I circulate. Um, uh, you know, so the quality of the of the material probably speaks to the interesting questions that, that my colleagues and students and and mentors, um, although there aren't many of them left now, <laughs> as, as you as you get past sixty. Um, so, um, so I think that's yeah. You know, the quality is probably just a reflection of the fact that, m that most of my colleagues ask very interesting questions, and of course, when they ask an interesting question, it is an interesting read, even if there isn't an answer at hand. That's certainly one thing. In terms of the hard work, uh, I can assure you there are people who work much harder than I do in terms of marking students' essays as, as lecturers, uh, or indeed just uh, you know, as um, teachers of you know, younger people. Yeah. So in that respect as an academic professor um you know i i don't work as hard as many people do work in fact i try to avoid too much administration and sort of formal teaching uh, so that i can create a bit of space just for the um my own academic um, machinations well as i said the first time we spoke i i cited you several times in my own dissertation so keep up the great work 
uh, many many of us look up to it. We aspire to do something similar. Obviously, not as great. I don't think that's possible from my side, at least. Not I can't speak for everyone else, but the the work you, you're doing is so fascinating. And when I spoke to Mark, Mike, all the others, they also have the same element of respect for your work. And I think it's 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 fitting that this group, these group of thinkers, that you all are coming from this with various different backgrounds, but and also from various different fields, which is quite fascinating to see how you guys converge and diverge. Towards the end of this conversation, I have a series where I called it Convergence and Divergence. And I've got a list of names for a lot of people you've worked with and perhaps disagree or agree on several topics that I'm going to ask you about. But to start this conversation, Mike asked me to ask Mark. So Mike Levin asked me to ask Mark Solms, what is the meaning of life? And... <laughs> Mark, I mean, he, he did a great job at asking, answering this question, but I think I want to start this question with, with that. From your side, what is the meaning of life, Carl? Because my next question, just, just to give you a preface, my next question is going to be, how does death shape life? Ah, excellent question. Um, so the meaning of life. Um, I think probably the most... Um, the richest answer, commonsensical answer, um, would come from um, Jakob Howe's formulation of the free energy principle, which is self-evidencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as you ask a question, what is the meaning of life? I am searching for a teleology or a teleonomy, a, a, a meaning that has um, a certain kind of function. Um I should confess that the free energy principle in and of itself is not predicated on any theological explanation. It, it, it actually is uh, one of Dan Dennett's strange inversions that, that you know, it starts off with um, a definition of life and then um, asks what kind of dynamics or processes must this definition entail? And then you put a um, a meaning or a teleology on top of that. It looks as if it is doing this and that. But if you um, accept um, the licensed teleology, then I think the simplest answer is to self-evidence, which um, would mean that any particle or person uh, will behave in a way that looks as if she is gathering evidence for her own world models of her lived or at least sensed world um and that could be at every level from the you know from the body through to the sort of um culture in which that particle or person is immersed um so mathematically that just means that everything is in the service of maximizing the evidence for your model of the world and that simply means behaving in a way that will solicit those data, those uh, uh, those sensory impressions from the world that are the most likely under your model and adjusting your model to render those inputs the most likely. And there's a beautiful circular causality there because also if you're in charge actively of gathering, garnering, soliciting certain data, certain content through your eyes, ears, or even your gut feelings, um, then um, there's a delicate balance between soliciting the data that's going to be um, confirmatory for your model 
um, which is a necessary uh, aspect of the free energy principle, because if you start to search out those sensations um, that are not consistent with, with your model of the world, you will find yourself dissipated, very, very cold, very, very lonely, very, very hot, exploding, burning, all those surprising states of being. So you have to select those data in the process of self-evidencing, sensory data, there's, you know, create, author your own sensorium in a way that nothing is surprising. And yet at the same time, you need to sample informative information. You need to respond to epistemic affordances so that your model is has got the right kind of grip on the world in, you know, that you are trying to you're trying to model. So the meaning of life uh, is self-evidencing, gathering evidence for your models of the lived world. Mm. And well, I mean that's a it's a beautiful answer. And how does that entail death? I mean, how does death come into this picture? How does life get shaped? by the concept of death right uh, that, that's that is a wonderful question specifically in relation to uh, a paper one of those papers that i had to act as an english uh, teacher <laughs> to <laughs> and a, a beautiful paper written by uh, a young colleague of mine called uh, alexander um alex um and it was entitled, or certainly its focus was on something called mortal computation. Now, I had always read mortal computation in a in a particular way, in, in a, comp a computer science sense, that um, there is a distinction between software that can be run on any machine, any Turing machine or any Van Neumann architecture. Uh, and because it can be run on any infrastructure or hardware it is in a sense immortal you know you can keep that and you can run it again and again and again um eternally and it will always run on different hardwares even if that hardware is itself mortal um so that would how i used to understand the notion of mortal computation as opposed to uh, um, immortal computation where the software is immortal because it can be run on different hardware but the there's another interpretation which um alex brought to the table which um i'm sure he's not the first but he certainly the first time i'd read it um expressed so eloquently um that there is a certain pressure afforded things that are mortal or mortal computation defined in terms of information processing i would say self-evidencing um in a situated embodied context so that the physical infrastructure of the of the body for example uh, becomes part of self-evidencing very closely related to notions of um the good regulator theorem that uh, you know any um agent or person who is able to regulate or control their environment just is a model of that environment or certainly has to have the same degrees of freedom as all the controllable aspects of that environment. So that's a nice, if you like, um, perspective or take on uh, mortal computation that the hardware matters, the body matters, the infrastructure matters, the brain, the physiology, the anatomy, uh, the wiring actually matters. And in that wiring, in that structure, in that composition, in say those multicellular architectures that Mike loves um, uh, playing with and <laughs> theorizing about, um, the very structure in and of itself is the computation. It, it is the knowledge, very much in the sense that um, from an evolutionary perspective, my body 
um, is um, the accumulation of evidence by natural selection as to what is the best kind of phenotype that is apt to survive in this particular eco-niche. Um, so that would be mortal computation. Um, but the perspective I wanted to get to was that it also implies that you're going to die. So if you are mortal and you're a mortal computer, and I would say that everything, well, well, specifically um, um, uh, biotic things, natural things, um, are mortal computers, and you have to die, um, that puts a certain pressure on the self-evidencing um, in the sense that if you don't do your self-evidencing properly, so this is again very teleological, so I wouldn't say this if I was a physicist, but I'm not a physicist here, so we can wax lyrical. Um, if I am, um, if I have the p potential to die, to cease, to dissipate, to decay, all those things which uh, signify a failure of self-evidencing so that my generative model is no longer, my world model is no longer fit for purpose in explaining my sensory coupling to the environment or to the eco-niche, um, then I have to continually self-evidence to update my generative model. So mm. I show an ad 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 adaptivity, uh, a responsiveness, a sensitivity to my, my environment that, of course, is the um, essence of self-evidencing. It's a process. You, know, you, you, you are always in the game of updating, increasing the marginal likelihood of um, of all the data under under your model. So in the absence of that pressure, um, then you would not get the, uh, the, the phenomenology of learning, of responding, of, of adapting. Um, you could even take that to its limit. I mean, there are arguments that it is from an evolutionary perspective, necessary to die. Um, so this gets a little bit technical um, in the following sense that um, as I enter the world, I have very little experience and therefore, um, as a biologist say, uh, little opportunity to engage experience-dependent plasticity in the way that I wire my brain and understand um, how my world works, what parts of my world I can control, you know, what parts of uh, the world uh, resemble things like me, for example, mother and the like. So I have to build and learn very, very quickly a world model. That requires a certain flexibility in terms of entertaining different hypotheses about the way that the world could work. So I Again, as a biologist, this would look like uh, a high degree of neuroplastic potential. I'm very impressionable. Um, mathematically, statistically, that would that would translate into my prior beliefs about the structure and the parameters of my world model are uninformative. It gives me the latitude now to do my belief updating or my learning um, in a way that I can shrink my uncertainty and, and develop more, much more precise prize. So as I come into the world um, and I am mortal, I come in um, with very imprecise prior beliefs about the, the nature of my lived world. And as I get older, I necessarily shrink that uncertainty and form very, very precise beliefs 
So anecdotally, I become um, stuck in my ways. I become a grumpy old man, personally. Um, uh, wise and old, but inflexible, because my precision necessarily is shrunk. This is part of self-evidencing as I converge upon my model of my life um, and my world, making it increasingly understandable, predictable, so that there's a, you know, a greater synchrony between what's going on inside my head and what's going on out there. Um, and you can see that there's a price to be paid as you get older, that you can't respond to a change in the world. So if the environment is changing in any way, then at some point it will become Bayes optimal for me to give up my model and start again, i.e. have children simply because of this process, this separation of temporal scales that um, is implicit in uh, a volatile or itinerant or capricious environment. And you may ask, well, does the environment have to change? Um, that uh, on one, on one um, level, the very fact that we actually um, design and create our environment you know from global warming through to producing uh delightful uh podcasts of the sort that we're engaged now we are always actively in the game yeah. of changing our environment at every time scale so yes as soon as you have an ensemble of things like you and me that constitutes certainly the cultural environment or the pro-social environment or the information environment um then it has to change and if it has to change there has to be this um this this um um well one way of accommodating that is to have this renewal of um the priors um in a way that a mathematician would understand in terms of Bayes optimal forgetting um you see this everywhere uh, if you are a behavioral psychologist or a reinforcement learning uh, person, you will know this as temporal discounting under the Bell optimality principle, for example. So um, wherever you look, there is a certain um, built into any kind of world modeling or the kinds of models that people use in reinforcement learning. There is this acknowledgement that, that evidence at hand in the recent past or indeed the recent future is more precise and more pertinent to your self-evidencing stuff that happened a long time ago is going to be very very less um, important because things might have changed so the way that you deal with that in terms of Bayesian belief updating uh, or the way that active inference under the free energy principle would handle this would be to, to actually estimate the volatility um, and um, forget in an optimal way so you can look at evolution and you can look at sort of the um, recurrence of um, different generations and the implicit mortality of any given one phenotype within a generation um, as exactly this kind of optimal Bayesian forgetting um, that is baked into and uh, whose time constants will be um, determined by the rate at which the world changes. So in that argument, the things that we that are learnable in our world basically change um, on a generational timescale. 
uh, sort of revolutions, you know, industrial ages through to information ages through to ages of intelligence, you know, whatever, whatever sort of, you know, the big picture, the climate, for example. So there's a certain time scale at which the, you know, the world changes, our environment changes, and that we change that environment that will probably put an upper bound on the duration of any given generative model before it has to forget and then start again. Uh, you know, you could imagine um, certain artifacts that that gracefully for forgot and that were um, um, that that, uh, that didn't actually have to die. But in a sense, if I lose the structures that embody the knowledge and the um, the ability of my generative model to underwrite my sense making and decision making. Um, if I just lose those, say I had a neurodegenerative disorder, say I had Alzheimer's disease, in a sense, uh, that's a certain kind of mortality, mm. you know, uh, personal mortality. So it may not entail physical death, but certainly it has gone, it has dissipated, it is lost to time. So there's, you know, there can be mortality at many, many different levels. I, I'll give you one example. Um, which always always makes me smile is that yeah that any well i'm sure mike levin's could probably give me loads of lovely examples about different sort of skin cells and liver cells and the like but in the brain your 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 nerve cells certainly your synapses are dying all the time and they're being rejuvenated so it's almost like there's a sort of continuous flux of synaptic connections they are the, the plugs and sockets that enable uh, nerve cells to talk to each other so their time scale is very very fast you know they, mm. they, they may only hang around synapses for a few minutes or a few you know say a few days at most cells you know days to weeks uh, yeah, you know, I think there's a meme that you know the you know all of my cells are going to replace themselves you know on yeah. a certain cycle you know week, weeks to months. So in that sense, these are all examples of mortal computation, mm -hmm. um, and at every level and every time scale, you see this um, this kind of itinerancy where you, you know where, where there is a renewal like process that that um, is probably mandated by a changing world and of course the renewal process creates that changing world at the temporal scale above mm. so it's a long-winded answer to a great question <laughs> now look your your answers are always fascinating Carl. There's, there's a point i think in the article you're talking about i'm just going to scroll down quickly on my notes um you mentioned real you guys mentioned real world examples of mcs mortal computers uh, you spoke about a homeostat electrochemical threads Xenobots, which is part of Mike Levin's work, organoids or fungal systems. So my question to you is, how are these real world examples of MCs, mortal computers, and why is it not that, let's say, a star, a galactic system, or the way a star sort of is born, goes through its life, and then dies? Why is that not part of this mortal computation? If maybe it is, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just not one of your real world examples mentioned. No, um, well, no, it's a, another great question there. Uh, and I was just thinking, what's the right answer? Um, you know, I think you 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 could, in principle, um, talk about the movement of the heavenly bodies in terms of mortal computation, in the sense that it is not eternal. Um, mm -hmm. and indeed, um, so. 
large physics deals you know deals logical issues in terms of the big bang and uh, what what's going to happen to the universe in um billion millennia and millennia um so you could read i think uh, any physically instantiated process or physically realized process in terms of mortal computation that that's really the point of, of mortal computation it's in the physics it's in the way that it is instantiated and realized um in 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 a physical sense um having said that what you're really asking is well why don't we ascribe to the moon cognitive abilities and and the kind of biotic mortality that you um that we're more, much more familiar with and i i think there is um at least uh from a classical perspective a principled answer to that uh and it does um rest upon um the notion of um different scales so we're talking before about you know our synapses having a different and uh kind of mortality in terms of the time constants from our cells from our brains from our bodies um from our families from our species and so on um i i think you can apply that notion to everything um so what does that mean well it, it means that there will be a spectrum of scales um both in i hesitate to say space because space is a construct but certainly um the size and time um and the question now is where would you normally expect to find biotic kind of self evidencing or self organization uh, um you know a, a basal cognition uh, that mike might have um, uh, articulated or described um and i i think there are sort of basic arguments would say that there is a goldilocks regime mm -hmm. and that there is a bright line between things that show this kind of self evidencing um uh, and things that can't show this kind where this kind is a biological kind of um of intelligence or sort of uh, again base, basal cognition and that um would be um uh, well let's just start um you know what determines the uh the differences between one scale and the next and one very simple answer and i repeat this is from a classical perspective so this is from the perspective not of quantum information theory but from the perspective of random dynamical systems that underwrite thermodynamics um you can get to quantum mechanics from the notion of random fluctuation random fluctuations and um writing down things like langevin equations so the idea here is that the universe is just um an expression of changing states where there's a separation of time scales into things states that change slowly and things that change very very quickly and then you can say that the the flow or the dynamics on the states of the universe are can be split into slow stuff that is a function of the state and fast stuff which we call random fluctuations or you know stochasticity um say the stochastic differential equation now here's here's the big move if that's true that means as you move from the very very small to the bigger in the way that you move certainly under um the the markov boundary or blanket partition that you know um that's part of the free energy principle you are going to have to average many many states together specifically the states that um surround or entail any given particle or artifact or anything that can be differentiated from its environment 
in that averaging, you are averaging away the, the random fluctuations. So as you move through um, the microscopic, well, the, con the quantum to the microscopic to the mesoscopic to the macroscopic, right through to the cosmological scale, you have a progressive reduction in the amplitude of random fluctuations. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means the very, very small, say, you know, the kind of physics that quantum mechanics would um, concern itself with, is going to be dominated by random fluctuations. They're going to be so fast, you're never going to be able to measure tooth attributes of anything at any one point in time. And in fact, you have to articulate your entire physics in terms of probability distributions or uh, probability amplitudes and wave functions and the like, um, uh, simply because the random fluctuations are dominating over the um, over the slower kinds of flows that typically have a more conservative aspect. So I'll just introduce a, a key distinction here. It may sound silly, but you'll see why it's relevant to your question about whether the stars have cognition. Um, so this flow can always be decomposed into two bits. Um, the, 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 uh, this, this is um, basically a, a gift of the Helmholtz decomposition. The dynamics um, uh, can be decomp decomposed into two parts. A conservative part, often known uh, as divergence-free or solenoidal, basically the kind of flow that you'd see as water uh, flows down um, a bath hole, a, bath, um, a plug hole, uh, but it circulates around. Uh, so it's not falling down, it, it's a component that actually stays at the same height, the same potential in gravitational potential, um, but moves round and round and round. And then there's the other part, which is a dissipative part that's flowing down the gradients, down, um, 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 in this instance, uh, it looks as if it's under the force of gravity, you know, and that dissipates energy. Um, which is why it's called a dissipative part of the flow. Crucially, that dissipative part of the flow um, is determined by the amplitude of the random fluctuations. So when you're very, very small, when, you, when you're doing quantum physics, mm. everything is about dissipation. Uh, everything is about um, minimising your potential, trying to get to your... Um, um, your your equilibrium, um, you know, as say described by the time independent Schrodinger equation. But as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, I mean, literally, physically, as you just get bigger, or you go from a you know sort of um, a macromolecule to um, a, say cellular structure, from a cellular structure to a multicellular structure, and so on, um, then those those um, random fluctuations and the accompanying dissipative flow starts to attenuate in relation to the solenoidal flow, to the conservative flow. So what would that look like? Well, it would look like um, particles and um, cells will now acquire a certain circular aspect, a certain um, solenoidal or divergence-free free, um, uh, aspect. What would that look like? Well, it would look like oscillations. It would look at many different scales. It might look like um, uh, the, um, the movement of flagella or cilia on, on a cell. It may look like, um, if you're a physiologist, it may, uh, or if you're a neurophysiologist, it may look like sort of gamma oscillations in the hippocampus. If you're a, uh, a cardiologist, it might look like um, the cardiac cycle. If you're a spiritual physiologist, it would look like the, the, you know, the rhythm of the breathing. If you're a linguist, it would look like uh, um, the orbit 
conflicts that we see, um, the cycles that we see in, in producing language, for example. If you're a motor, if you're a motor physiologist, it would look like walking. Um, if you're uh, if you're a meteorologist, it would well, no, that's probably yeah, taking a bit too far. Um, so uh, what I'm saying is that you get into the world of um, um, oscillations and orbits and life cycles and that brings us back to the mortality thing so that you're the the, you're, the characteristic thing of biotic self-organization is this is this life cycle is this another expression of the solenoidal flow let's go even further now let's go up to the scale of the earth and the moon and the stars at which point the random fluctuations are completely eliminated because they're averaged away mm -hmm. so now what are we left with we're just left with this conservative flow what is this? It's just Newton's laws of motion. This is classical mechanics. It's just the movement of large, massive bodies um, uh, around, uh, you know, in the in their in their classical um, in their classical orbits. So that's why I introduced the notion of solenoidal flow in the sense that the rotation of of um, or the precession of um, um, you know heavenly bodies around each other. Is the ultimate expression that the solenoidal dynamics are now predominant simply because you're dealing with very very big things. Mm. Um, I mean, once you go back down to the, you know, if you went into the heart of the sun, you could you could you could at a very microscopic or quantum level, quantum mechanics still applies. But the sun as an object at a scale that we would uh, perceive, you know, by looking at it. From millions and millions of miles away, um, now acquires a Newtonian mechanics, a Lagrangian, a classical mechanics. So then you've got this spectrum, and um, one, um, and I'm not absolutely sure about this, but I think it's an interesting proposition. One question then is there a Goldilocks regime which is not completely conservative and is not completely dissipative in the spirit of quantum mechanics, where um, you could um, find biotic natural uh, systems that have these life cycles that have both this dissipative aspect and of course the dissipation i'm talking about here the gradient flows um down um down the sort of gravitational potential um but the um the potential afforded by the free energy um the, you know uh, either of a thermodynamic sort or variational free energy that underwrites the, the free energy principle that just is a self-evidencing so the self-evidencing is the continual maximization of evidence for your models the free en the variational free energy is uh, the negative log of that evidence so that means you're always trying to minimize so the variational free energy now plays the role of a gravitational potential it's like a potential energy as it were and so we need the dissipative part to self-evidence. But if we self-evidence in the absence of, um, uh, it, it, if we self-evidence um, in the absence of any solenoidal flow, we wouldn't be mortal because we wouldn't have this cyclical revisit, this orbit, this, this kind of itinerancy um, that is necessary to break detailed balance if you're, you're if you're a, um, somebody in uh, dynamical systems theory that is characteristic of um, the stochastic chaos mm -hmm. that we uh, confront and actually instantiate in a very structured way through this self-evidencing dissipative uh, dissipative adaptation 
to uh, to the world. So that that would be um, that would be my argument to say probably the moon doesn't think, <laughs> and probably um, electrons don't do a lot of thinking. But there is um, a range in between. Um, you know, that starts where Mike Mike Levin gets intrigued with xenobots and and the like. Um, probably stops at the at the, at the level of. of um, um, uh, lorries and cars. Mm. Um, Carl, my last the the last episode I posted was with Professor Stephen Grossberg. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Oh yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, no, he's a, he, not not a friend, but and uh, not really a mentor in the sense that, uh, uh, but he was certainly one of the um, the great and good in the with Jerry Edelman, who was one of my mentors um, mm. well, before he moved uh, to to Boston from uh, from the Rockefeller yes. in New York. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've spoken to Stephen twice now, and Steve's work. I mean, it's it's incredible. I think I think he's underrated. I think he's not he's not as well known as he should be. I believe that his work is, it goes under the radar because I perhaps similar to you, the more com complex the idea, the less accessible it becomes to a general audience. And I think that that does become a bit of a hindrance. But I posted the interview and, and Mike Levin posted, commented on the tweet saying he loves Stephen Grossberg's work. So my, my question is, these dynamical systems he talks about, this trying to solve the brain plasticity, stability dilemma and 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 trying to figure out how we cope with this catastrophic forgetting, etc. How does the free energy principle converge with this idea? And where does it diverge? And at what point do you guys differentiate and define yourselves as separate entities? Um, I don't think that we we would really. Um, I, 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 um, and I, I think I have a slightly privileged um, perspective on uh, Stephen Grossberg's contributions, simply because um, of the, 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 the your know, my heritage, intellectual heritage, mm. uh, starting from where he started. In fact, I'll tell you a very quick, uh, funny story that um, under Jerry Edelman, we had to uh, relocate from New York to California uh, to the Scripps Institute, and then ultimately the uh, New Neurosciences Institute. So we had to pack up everything and put them into 16 wheeler trucks and send everything off to um um to california as we moved and i was um in america at that time and and, and uh helping sort of do the packing up uh, and during the packing up we actually found stephen grosberg's phd in original notes <laughs> in an office that he used to and jerry Edelman said well these must be worth something by now uh, and i think he's absolutely right so you know, if you think back, and again, this this is very much secondhand of me listening as a young man to the stories of people like Jerry Edelman and um, um, all of the great and good at that time were telling. You know, you could, I think, credit people like um, um, Jerry Edelman and Stephen Grossberg with the inception of computational neuroscience, and certainly that crowd. Um, were responsible for coining the term neuroscience and you know the work that Jerry Edelman was doing and Stephen Grossberg together with the other you know uh, wonderful thinkers people like Vernon Mountcastle from a more biological perspective um, I think underwrote what we now understand as computational neuroscience um, and to a certain extent much of um, much of early neural network theory for example um, uh, so a lot of um, a lot of the 
things that we have been talking about uh, were foregrounded or prefigured by their writings at that time, which was very early on. This is sort of, you know, mm. um, um, sort of, you, you know, 70s and 80s. Um, so uh, you're, you're saying that Stephen Grossberg's work has not had the acclaim that it deserves. Um, I one well uh, in in privileged circles it is certainly acclaimed. So you know yeah. it may be that millennials don't know about him, but that's, you know, that's, that's their problem really. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, every generation has to rediscover those basic truths. So on that view, um, you could say he was just a bit before his time, as you could argue for Jerry Edelman, for you know, if, yes. if you wanted to. Um, um, so you know. I think that all of um, um, Stephen Grosberg's ideas have, you know, um, are insightful. They have a validity and will prove the test of time. Um, what are the differences? Um, I don't think that the concepts do um, differ in any way in the sense that you could naturalize all of Grosberg's ideas yeah. under the formalism, under the Bayesian mechanics um, and the self-evidencing mechanics that the free energy affords. That's the purpose of the free energy principle. It's not trying to replace anything. It's trying to say, here is a first principle account of what we know is true, what we have articulated in, in a particular way. Um, and Stephen Grosberg has a very particular way of articulating these ideas. <laughs> and I think that, that does sequester him from millennials and the general, uh, the you know, the general public, um, uh, you know, often accused of of a man who loves widgets uh, uh, and inventing uh, beautiful names for 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 sometimes uh, complicated but often very understandable ideas. Uh, adaptive resonance theory would be one nice example here. So adaptive resonance theory, as it says on the you know on the on the label on the tin, is all about the solenoidal flow with within recurrent <coughs> recurrent neural networks that just is an expression of this solenoidal self-organization we're just talking about. Mm. But of course, it's in the uh, you know, uh, adaptive has the dissipated part. So we were just saying that to adapt is to um, do our gradient flows, do our optimization on some objective function, some potential. For, for, for me, that would be the variational free energy um so just in the adaptive resonance theory you've got the uh dissipative and conservative fundaments of all self-organization that are celebrated in the free energy principle so you know i i think it's just a way that people understand and um call out these ideas with their particular rhetoric that, 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 that differentiates certainly people like me from people like stephen kresberg but under the hood um, I think every you know everything that Stephen Grossberg has brought to the table, um, in, you know, should find a very comfortable place in twenty first century you know physics of sentience that, that that things like the free energy principle uh, aspire to. So I don't think there are any. Can you think of any differences? I'm not, I'm not sure that there are any really. I think one thing he he briefly mentioned was if I, if if I think about it, I don't think he likes the idea of this fully probabilistic idea it's more it's, it's more it is sort of calculable there there is a dynamical mathematical system that can sort of solve certain problems and this whole idea of not of of, of placing probability theory to all of this doesn't necessarily answer the question um i might be mistaken but right. i think that is one of the aspects we 
Okay, well, no, well, let us pretend that's what he believes, because I'm sure there are lots of people out there that do believe yes, that. Yeah, let's, let's work with that. Let's <laughs> work with that one. Yeah, okay, well, that, that, well I, I mean, in fact, you could, um, you could argue that an extreme version of that um, perspective haunts and um, frames the entire reinforcement learning community, including... Mm-hmm. Deep RL right uh, right back to behaviorism and uh, um, reinforcement um, um, or behavioral psychology and uh, you know where, where the, those notions come from. So um, you know the notion that reward or reinforcement is enough; it, it is all you need. Mm. Um, I think speaks to the fact. Well, you don't need probability theory. You know, if I could, if I've got some optimization machine and I've got a reward function. Um, off we go. Mm. We'll get GPT. We'll get you know. We get deep learning. It's all all sorted. Thank you. Um, so you know, I think there is a view out there that you don't need to um, either code or articulate or have a, uh, a a mathematical or principled account, a theoretical account of optimization um, that is framed in terms of uh, beliefs or probability distributions. Um, and that would be a really uh, big bright line between people like me mm. and those kinds of people. Um, so as a physicist, you very quickly realize that uh, there is nothing uh, other than probability mm. distributions. So right from quantum mechanics, uh, you know, which is just a statement of um you know, the symmetries and the solutions that have um, ensue from uh, casting the universe in terms of probabilities through to um, looking at all of our um, self-organization in terms of belief updating, in terms of inference, in terms of, you know, basic brain hypothesis as, as the, you know, the, uh, the counterpoint to the reinforcement learning um, uh, perspective. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's an important distinction. I'm not so sure, yeah, and perhaps Stephen Grosberg was of that age. Uh, perhaps it was an age, I don't know this because um, I wasn't part of these debates, but it, there was a time be- uh, when there was a, uh, a lot of shouting between people who were very Bayesian and people who were very frequentist and didn't yeah. like... Um, you know, didn't really um, subscribe to it. I think one of one of the things they they mentioned was the fact that the ones and zeros are too. It's too simple. It's too simple for a complex dynamical system that is the human being to sort of to sort of simplify this into a one or a zero. It's it's not enough. This is way more complex. And I think I'm either paraphrasing Steve or one of his students, Ogi Ogas, but one of them mentioned this as as just being too simplistic. And and that's the mistake we're making, right? Okay, I, I could I could also just be wrong and recalling a completely different. Well, no, no, let's <laughs> let's work with that one. Um, so that's that, that, uh, I'm just trying to get my head around that. So a a probabilistic uh, formulation in terms of either probability theory or mm. um, information theory yeah. um, is too simple. To, under, uh, to describe um, complex uh, dynamical systems. Um, I have to say, I think that's an absolute nonsense. <laughs> I don't understand why anybody might say that um, in the sense, of course, that um, the, you know, complex dynamical systems are usually only re- you know, um, written down in terms of stochastic chaos, which is just a way of writing down 
the probability density dynamics of a complex system. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly practically that really starts to bite when you actually apply um, um, the, the theories of complex systems uh, in the service of actually um, real-time monitoring, forecasting, scenario modeling, situational awareness where it matters. So for example, in the COVID uh, recent COVID pandemic or climate forecasting or meteorology or psychology, all of these fields um, uh, 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 effectively appeal to the density dynamics, um, whether it's sort of uh, stochastic agent-based modeling through to epidemiological modeling. Um, so I, I, I can't think of an example of complex system modeling that, that could possibly be aptly described in uh, without reference to mm. um uh, to probability theory there are there is a community out there i think although i i don't um i don't engage with them um who would like to try and describe everything in terms of deterministic systems um and determinist uh, and um, deterministic chaos and bifurcations and phase transitions um i think that's an interesting approach uh, it is would be the limiting case where um you've got you've still got your um and, and notice that the only um the only thing that makes that interesting uh, as um a, a description of a complex system is this solenoidal flow it's the nonlinearities that are required in order to get this um conservative um breaking of detail bounds in, into the mix but is this a limiting case where the random fluctuations are, you know are, are very are very very small uh, and it's not really fit for purpose when it comes to actually modeling real real really complex systems so uh, the, the reason um perhaps it's a bit hard to say it's absolute nonsense um the reason i say it's absolute nonsense is that the, yeah you need the random fluctuations and the inherent mm. probability theory uh to talk about uh the uh complex systems you, you yeah. know, you, if you deny yourself that you are basically um trying to describe uh, complex systems with very simple things like Lorentz attractors and and you know and the like which you can get quite a long way with but at a certain point it just goes away yeah no I, I actually don't think it was Steve who said that I think it was one of his students um, who wrote a book on how thinking emerged from chaos. And I think it was based on what you're talking about regarding this, the, the chaos theory. Now, generally, it's just unpredictable, and there is no sort of probabilistic outcome from whatever you're trying to study. Right. But yeah, again, that... even then, it still doesn't work. <laughs> it really does not. Yeah. Without, I, I see. So it's the, it's the indeterminism, um, sensitivity to initial conditions, indeterministic chaos that they're appearing to. Yeah, that, 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 I don't think that's a tenable argument. Yeah. Well, you know, stochastic chaos is exactly um, that kind of indeterminacy, but also now equipped with, um, with, with fast random fluctuations. So now that you have to deal with probability, the evolution of probability distribution that will show chaos I and mean, that's what stochastic chaos is about that's a description uh of, of the so interesting random dynamical systems like you me and our universe um are just ways of writing down the functional form of the dynamics that show stochastic chaos mm. uh, Cole, i noticed when because because i'm a medical doctor a lot of a lot of the listeners assume that this podcast is a medical podcast and it's not it's a very very much a philosophical podcast trying to understand the mind-body problem, consciousness, nature of reality. But I think 
even though when we touch on these topics, you can't help but have practical significance and and delving to these issues on morality or certain practical issues. For example, something you brought up in one of your lectures is called sim synaptopathy. Synaptopathy. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What is synaptopathy? And what is the relevance of this with regards to the Bayesian brain and healthcare? Right. So um, it has great relevance. So synaptopathy is um, is just a um, an umbrella term for a pathology of synapses. Um, so and um, for those non non medics or non neuroscientists, I repeat the synapse is basically a microscopic um, plug and socket that enables brain cells to communicate that um, in turn um, lends the brain uh, a functional anatomy that can be thought of as a, a deep neuronal network, almost identical to the uh, deep recurrent uh, neural networks or, you know, of the kind they might find in, say, a transformer architecture. There are certain other principles fun uh, of functional anatomy and integration which um, 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 would characterize a, a neuronal network, but crucially, um, that neural network depends upon synaptic connections. So that those synaptic connections um, are uh, incredibly important, and if they if there is any pathology, um, you will inevitably um, evince a neurological or psychiatric disease. Now, I'm not saying that all psychiatric and neurological disease um, can be cast as a synaptopathy. Uh, but anything that is a synaptopathy will manifest as a neurological or psychiatric disease. And then you've got all sorts of etiologies for how synapses might uh, might break down. Um, there could be um, um, a chemical imbalance. There could be a neurodevelopmental imbalance. There could be neurodegenerative uh, etiologies. So, you know, a very simple example of that would be, say, Alzheimer's disease, um, the kind of uh, um, dysfunctional uh, syn uh, synaptic function um, you get in Parkinson's disease, uh, alpha synucleopathies, um, the kind that you might get if you took um, uh, a psychedelic um um well too too many psychedelics or too much of a, of a psychedelic uh so um that would be a chemically mediated um uh, synaptopathy so anything that disturbs perturbs or renders aberrant synaptic communication uh could be uh, in a pathological way or that then leads to a pathology uh, is a synaptopathy so it's a really important concept i think if you're a neurologist or, you know and um, i repeated is an umbrella term because there could be lots of ways in which you could break your synapse. The the reason it's particularly fundamental um, for um, medicine and particular psychiatry or neuropsychiatry is that those um, the synaptic connectivity basically determines the connection weights in your neuronal network, and very much in the spirit of. Um, in the moment adaptation and this um, contextualization that we we're talking about, these synapses, the static strength changes over all time scales. So before we're talking about uh, synaptic regression, you know, to use Giulio Tononi's notion of synaptic homeostasis, you know, synapses coming and going in terms of them being mortal structures. But of course, there's a whole gamut of time scales where the 
um, their expression and their strength um, is contextualized in, in, in a base optimal way um, um, right from um, you know within milliseconds in terms of after hyper uh, you know after hyperpolarization if uh, effects through uh, um, or refractory periods then through to say you know several hundred milliseconds with after hyperpolarization effects through to um, uh, short-term plasticity uh, through to uh, um, early and late long-term plasticity so the, what I'm trying to get in play is that synapses are the thing that make you a good regulator a good model mm. a good self-evidencing machine because they underwrite the network structure that coordinates all of your sense making and all of your action be it materic or autonomic or physiological um, and this architecture is changing all the time at many different time scales in a really coordinated and important way of the sort that underwrites everything that we learn but also in terms of everything we attend to and everything that we um you know everything that um one could argue we actually experience so that 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 brings into play an interesting kind of pathology where you've lost the ability to modulate or contextualize your synaptic connections um, and then you start thinking, well, what would that look like? Um, and at this point, you start to look um, to computational neuroscience or theoretical neurobiology or functional metaphors or explanations for, for teleologies that can be naturalized mathematically that might point to um, what it would look like if you actually had a broken um, or a dysfunctional modulation of synapses. So the kind of synaptopathy, which didn't mean that the synapse was removed or degenerated, but was now rendered um, impervious to modulatory effects. Um, and I use the word modulatory effects deliberately here because most of the drugs that are used in neurology and psychiatry act upon neuromodulatory systems. So now we're talking about a particular kind of synaptopathy, which is uh, of uh, a modulatory sort, usually associated with either consequences or causes expressed in ascending neuromodulatory neurotransmitter systems like um, dopamine, acetylcholine, serot-5-HT, uh, serotonin, uh, and a whole host of other, um, you know, adrenaline, for example. All of these oxytocin, so all of these modulatory neurotransmitters are in the game of setting the gain of your synapses in the right kind of way. So one really important synaptopathy is, is when the synapse is no longer modulated in the right kind of way. So I repeat, what would that look like or how could one account for, the, what would the consequences of that be? So now if we turn to one instance of um, the Bayesian brain and more generally um, um, predictive processing um, that is, again, um, it can be cast in terms of a free energy, uh, free energy minimizing self-enhancing process. Um, so in predictive coding, the idea is that you are um, trying to understand and make sense of the world and indeed supply predictions for your autonomic and motor reflexes uh, under a generative model. And the way that this works is that you uh, optimize 
your predictions through a process of Bayesian belief updating, um, but under a predicted coding, all, all, aka also known as a, a Bayesian filtering scheme. You do that by uh, using prediction errors. So the idea is that you've got a generative model in play you, that is almost universally a deep model in the sense that it has hierarchical structure. Um, and this hierarchy that is defined by these sparse synaptic connections um, now can be read as a generation, an inside-out generation of predictions to the sensorium or to um, the motor plant or the autonomic um, um, system. Um, and then certain systems will have sensors or sensory input, and then you'll compare your prediction against the sensory input to form a prediction error. And then that prediction error suitably weighted by its precision, by its in, uh, by uh, uh, in the confidence that you ascribe um, by its signal to noise ratio effectively, is then used to drive your updates. And that drive, that prediction error, that precision weighted prediction error is mathematically formally identical to the free variational free energy gradient. So irrespective of the form of your generative model, you can always write down this gradient flow we were talking about before, the dissipative part of my dynamics, my sense-making, my self-evidencing, as a flow on a free energy gradient. That just is the prediction error. Um, I won't explain why, uh, why it figures so centrally predictive coding, um, but the key point here is that, notice I said precision-weighted prediction error. So what does that precision weighting mean from the point of view of a physiologist? Well, it would mean that um, if I am, say, a neuron or a neural population now reporting a prediction error to somebody higher, to another neural population higher in the hierarchy, um, and thereby driving them to a better explanation that would explain me away, where I am now comparing my top-down predictions with my bottom-up sensory um, information, then the degree to which I broadcast these ascending prediction errors on this hierarchical architecture is going to be um, determined by the precision of my report. So a very imprecise, a very low signal to noise um, prediction error should not have any influence on my belief updating and therefore I will actually desensitize myself as a prediction error population or prediction error neuron, just incidentally, usually associated with some called superficial pyramidal cells that sit uh, you know, in the top layers of your uh, of, of your cortex and your brain. Um, I will desensitize um, or I will um, reduce my sensitivity to all of my inputs so that I'm not shouting at you to change your mind. So you're the higher, uh, you're a higher neuro population. Um, and I've done that because you have told me that in this context, what you've got to say is very imprecise. So for example, I might be a little visual um, neuron or a neural population, um, but the lights are off. So anything I say is complete, completely imprecise. It's just noise, basically. And you know that because you, you've, you've inferred that, that, that we're operating in a dark room. So you'll decrease my precision uh, via these neuromodulatory mechanisms. And therefore, um, I will not um, re be reporting 
uh, what's going on. Now imagine the situation where you've got a particular synaptopathy, um, a synucleopathy, for example, in the occipital cortex, where you now cannot control my gain. So now I'm stuck in a particular modulatory synaptic state where I'm always reporting stuff. Now that's going to be that's going to have profound effects on your belief updating and on what you actually believe is a cause of, of your of your sensory input. You're going to start hallucinating. Mm. Um, and indeed that's what you see in many um in many uh, synaptopathies or synuclopathies uh, involving, um, you know, sensory, uh, you know, say the you know the, the visual the visual cortex. So what we're saying here is that synaptopathy of this particular sort inevitably targets a really delicate part of inference and sense making, which is getting the precision or the standard error or the signal-to-noise estimates right. And it will inevitably lead to profound difficulties in inference. So what's going to happen is your brain's going to make false inferences. And I mean this in a very you know, sort of uh, standard, straightforward way. If you were teaching your, your medical students you know, about type 1 and type 2 um, statist statistical errors, this is exactly the kind of false inference that the brain can make if you have this form of synaptopathy um, uh, so you could commit type 1 errors inferring something is there when it is not what's that that's an hallucination that's a delusion that's you inferring something is there when there was no actual cause or you could make a type 2 error what does that mean well it means i'm inferring something not is not there when it is what's that that's a neglect syndrome that's a dissociation syndrome um, so um and you can start telling, uh, you know, formally identical, at least mathematically formally identical uh, stories to explain things like Parkinson's disease. Uh, and this introduces a really interesting twist that normally people think about, um, if you're a, a psychologist, you think about this uh, capacity to contextualize your, your synaptic strengths um, um, in terms of gain control often described or used to be pre-millennial uh, with cortical gain control. It's now post-millennial. It's now excitation inhibition balance. Um, but it's the same concept. It's the excitability um, of, of you know, um, certain populations in uh, cortical microcircuits. You normally think about that in terms of attentional gain. So if I want to attend to this kind of information, say it could be auditory or somatosensory in a very dark room, then I'm going to increase those pathways by increasing the gain of those um, uh, uh, prediction error units, for example, in a predictive coding scheme. So this precision weighting of prediction errors, and you'll find that the notion of precision weighted prediction errors quite central in sort of neurophilosophical counterpredictive processing is um, often associated with, with selecting the newsworthy information by attentional gain uh, processes that are mediated by things like, say, cholinergic discharges and the ensuing uh, fast synchronous um, uh, dynamics that, that they, they, they normally entail. Um, however, th there is probably a much more important complement to attentional gain, and that's sensory attenuation. Mm -hmm. So we, we actually spend 99% of our modulatory attentional mechanisms ignoring stuff. 
the, you know, the classic, you know, think about your left toe. So why weren't you attending to your left toe before? Why didn't you feel? Why don't you have any phonology from your left toe until I actually... So 99.9 .9 recurring of all the prediction errors that we could harvest, we could garner in the, in, in the um, service of self-evidencing is actually ignored. So we're attenuating all of this stuff all the time. So what would happen if I had a synoptopathy that precluded sensory attenuation? If, for example, this particular sensory attenuation was in the motor domain, what that would mean is I can't ignore the fact that I'm not moving. So if I was unable to ignore the fact I was not moving, what would that look like? Well, if I had the prior belief I'm about to stand up, the intention to stand up in, say, some high-level central pattern generator that would normally be realized by motor reflexes as a prior belief that then is realized by um, minimizing the prediction errors that ensue from this very, very precise top-down prediction. Um, but... Um, if I'm now confronted with the fact that all this very, very precise prediction error is telling me I'm not moving, that's going to override my intention to move. So if I can't ignore the fact I'm not moving, I can never realise the intention to move. That's just bradykinesia uh, of the kind that you would find in things like uh, Parkinson's disease. You can't initiate movements simply because you can't attend away from or ignore the fact you can think of this in other, many other domains. Let's pretend that I now um, can't attenuate. There's a failure of sensory attenuation to certain interoceptive signals, uh, say mesenteric signals or signals from the gut. So I can't attend away from all those little um, interoceptive signals that normally I ignore. So now I have to find explanations for them. So normally I would ignore all the gut feelings, the interception from um, from my gastrointestinal tract. But now I'm trying to find explanations. Have I got uh, bowel cancer? Uh, you know, is this pain? Um, you know, what is causing? And of course, the more you attend to it, the more you have to find these explanations. So you can see immediately now that you've got um, you know a fairly mechanistic and quite plausible explanation for somatization. Uh, and possibly even chronic pain uh, that, that is just due to, to uh, at the end of the day, a failure of a particular kind of modulation, uh, synaptopathy, where, you, where, where there's a failure of sensory attenuation. Let's say I was born with this. I'm born with an inability to filter out, to attenuate sense, uh, visual or extraceptive information. What would that look like? Well, it means that I would always be glued to the sensorium. It means I would not be able to attend away and I would find um, and thereby not be able to build deep generative models to explain away the prediction errors, um, which means that I'm going to now try to going to try and avoid unpredictable, unexplainable sensory impressions. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about severe autism, which is where this story actually started. Um, so it's, you know, th this would be another expression of this kind of synaptopathy, but in this is in the extraceptive domain. Um, and if you pair that now with the interceptive domain and sort of uh, attachment theory and um, affiliative touch 
being sort of halfway between a somatosensory and, a, and, and an interceptive modality, you can start to elaborate all sorts of stories about what it would look like with this one very simple, very pernicious pathology, which is just being able to get the gain control on your synaptic connections. So that's why synaptopathy is so important for me. It, it, it's, so, it's so fascinating because as you're talking about this, something that comes to mind for me is when we think of all these levels of credences that are placed on experience, these priors and posterior outcomes, you guys mentioned 5E theory, which is pretty much based on 4E cognition, Andy Clark's work. I mean, they talk about embodied, enacted, embedded, and what is the fourth one? Extended. Yes, extended by. So w w when you take into account these E's and, and your, your fifth E, which you can obviously elaborate on, in terms of levels of importance or credence regarding the priors and posteriors, when it comes to psychiatry, in terms of synaptopathy, synaptopathy, however you pronounce that, my South African accent's obviously playing a role there. Um, do you think that SSRIs, for example, with regards to each E, now we're talking about if you're giving someone an SSRI, you're addressing one psychiatric component of this illness, yet we know now that if you take a human's experience, there is a multi-layered experience. So is this SSRI enough, considering the fact that they're embodied, they're embedded in this environment, extended? How much credence is each one worth? And at what point should we adjust protocol or treatment within mental health psychiatry, even as a general practitioner? What should we do practically to use this new information? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd hesitate to to say too much about that because I haven't seen patients for a long time now. I, I sort of see students. Instead, I, I, always, I always put a disclaimer call just just to be aware. Just I always put a disclaimer in the video. This is a philosophy podcast, so all of this is highly theoretical, and people should know that always seek help. This is not active medical advice. Right. Um, <laughs> Or, or even uh, you know, even advising um, my neurological or psychiatric colleagues, or even you know general practitioners and um, and healthcare professionals. Um, but I think, but I, I think you make an extremely good point that you know these um, these monolithic um, um, uh, approaches um, with reuptake inhibitors or um, you know uh, antipsychotics. Um, are, are very, very blunt simply because they do not target an, uh, in, in the right kind of way um, the functionally specialised anatomy, that computational anatomy that we've been talking about. Yeah. So, for example, I just told you a few stories, um, same mechanism, different systems, completely different pathologies, from Parkinson's disease to autism. Um, and that, that distinction rests just upon the particular part of the brain where that synaptopathy was, um, or that kind of synaptopathy or uh, um, uh, aberrant neuromodulation uh, was being expressed. Um, so that tells you immediately, if you give a drug that targets everything, you're not gonna be very specialized or personalized in, in shaping or tailoring um, that pharmacotherapy for that particular uh, person, simply because you're targeting, you know, targeting the, you know, the, the wrong uh, part of the brain. And furthermore, um, as as you will know, um, there is a, um, a a a topography associated with 
all of these neuromodulatory systems in the sense that, for example, dopamine um, uh, you know, uh, you know, has very well-defined mesocortical and mesolimbal uh, projection systems to the to the cortex and different parts of the cortex with very different profiles of uh, dopamine subreceptors and, uh, and and presynaptic and all sorts of things with all different uh, um, um, subtypes. So it's very difficult, and of course, you know, many people, including many of my colleagues, spend their entire careers trying to, you know, unpack just the, you know, one particular subtype of one particular neuromodulatory, whether it's sort of, you know, the the, the D2 um, receptor for dopamine, or whether it's five five HT2A as opposed to two B. I have friends who um, I was I was mentored by people who love the two B receptor. Uh, most of my friends like like the two A receptor because that's the one that's um, um activated by psychedelics um which is another example you know that you know the, the, there is the, the you know the receptors the serotonergic 5ht2a receptors have a very particular um um distribution um you know that reflects the projection fields of of the serotonergic system from the rafe um so you know you, you even giving one drug say an um, ssri um um, you know, you are going to have no control over where you're actually uh, tuning this. And this is particularly relevant in terms of things like um, the effects of psychedelics um, on um, higher level um, belief structures implicit in hierarchical generative models in the brain relative to the lower level sense-making parts. And I mentioned that specifically because, of course, that's very relevant for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for example and i suspect that's that you know that will be one real answer um that to make the most use of um the, the pharmacological tools available uh to neurologists and, and um and psychiatrists um then an understanding of the mechanisms of action and in particular the functional specialization functional both in terms of the sense making say for example under a predictive coding or predictive processing model but also in terms of the functional anatomy and the, and the you know the um the neurochemistry and receptor architectonics that people have put a lot of effort into databasing and understanding um, to make the most of that um, then understanding the mechanics of the what these um, drugs are doing uh, and the systems upon which they are um, operating may be very useful in motivating for example combined psychotherapy with um, uh, you know uh, uh, particular drug treatment um, so you know, one, one, one example of this, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are many, many examples of this, but um, is um, the work of people, um, the theoretical work of people like uh, Robin Carhart-Harris and, uh, you know, his mentors, people like Dave Nutt and, and, and other uh, very worthy uh, senior colleagues, um, where there's now, uh, you know, a proposal that uh, 5-HT2A agonism or psychedelic uh, uh, drugs can have um, effects at multiple timescales. So it's not just, so the standard story in this, in this, uh, in my world would be that you're changing the precision of um, sense-making or prediction error, for example, uh, neural populations in the visual hierarchy in a hierarchically imbalanced way so that you're dissolving the precision, reducing the precision of higher level belief structures um, uh, in favour of affording greater precision to lower level 
um, um, processing or belief updating or predictive coding. Uh, and that would explain um, the visual hallucinosis you experience with psychedelics, but also the therapeutic effect in the sense that you now can lift yourself out of or you are you are literally if you're stuck in a rut with very very precise priors in terms of you know the way that i think uh, that i perceive and make sense of things and also um infer what i'm going to do next the way that i plan the way that i uh, the way that i am an agent if you have very very precise beliefs you're literally stuck in a rut mm. um and by decreasing the precision you now afford the latitude to explore more um alternative hypotheses of being way, ways of being um so you know that would be one um if you like um story or narrative um that inherits from a computational view of or a self-evidencing view of the brain that would inform us at least license the use of uh, psychedelics in the context of psychotherapy that you know, you've opened up um new ways of being uh, let's explore that. Um, of course, you know, finding the new way would be the responsibility of your psychotherapist or, or your counsellor. Uh, um, you wouldn't necessarily have to do it all by yourself. Um, but there's another time course which has come into um, focus, which is um, so, um, sometimes expressed in terms of metaplasticity. So this is the it's just the ability of certain um, drugs to promote the plastic potential that we were talking about right at the beginning of this interview that is afforded childlike um, brains, that, um, that impressionability, um, the, um, the, the kind of relaxation of priors now that, that, that contextualizes how much I can learn. So if I can render myself much more learnable by resetting the potential for change in synaptic strengths you know which is what i meant by the synaptic uh, plasticity i've now opened up a window of opportunity to learn something new so that's another perspective on the conjoint use or uh, a more or possibly even sim more simple-minded um, use and deployment of certain um um uh, psycholytic or uh, um, uh, mind-altering drugs um that you're basically creating um, windows of uh, of opportunity for change, and then you can start to plan what kind of therapy do you do do you engage in during that window of opportunity where you can learn new ways of being. Um, my anecdotal understanding of the literature in this area is that this view um, has proved um, in trials. Um, um, you know, it certainly. Um, there is evidence that psychedelics certainly have a therapeutic efficient efficacy, and particularly in the context of end of life care. Mm. Um, and, you know, where hypotheses about how I make sense of information, sensory information, or indeed stuff that I read on the internet or what my doctor is telling me, um, um, and also ways of behaving, the way that I should, you know, what kind of person am I? I'm a dying person. Um, is that the right prior? Are there other ways of celebrating your know, end of life? Uh, you know, but to get to those other other alternatives, you, you've got to relax those priors and render yourself impressionable like a child again. Um, and it may be that thinking about the use of certain drugs in that context may be a, a useful way for people to actually to motivate their therapeutic interventions 
and also um, um again another potentially um um useful um contribution of this kind of theorizing is as a narrative for the for, for the patient or the client if the patient understands the source and the nature of their hallucinosis or their delusions or the somatization um then having a rational much in the spirit of cognitive behavior therapy you know trying to understand why um panic attacks occur just understand the physiology of panic attacks understanding that um if you like can sometimes be therapeutically extremely useful to equip and empower the patient with an understanding of the mechanics of what is happening to them and why it is happening to them even if there's little one can do therapeutically just that level of understanding can, can sometimes be therapeutically very viable so a number of colleagues um um you know and and, uh, and friends um in psychotherapy um and, you know tell very convincing stories along this lines you know in terms of group therapy just talking about active inference and interception and uh, mentalizing their homeostasis and their physiology and understanding how they um uh, how they infer themselves to be in particular mental states on the basis of sensory evidence from from their body for example that can be quite a, a powerful psychotherapeutic tool Mm. It reminds me of the work uh, done by Randolph Nessie. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Randolph Nessie's work. Um, there, he's known as the father of evolutionary psychiatry. Um, are you familiar with his work, Carl? At all? I'm afraid not, no. He wrote a book called um, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. Just yeah. trying to sort of show, show people that evolution does have a very grounded and great basis for explaining phenomena such as mental disorder so you don't you don't yeah so it's uh, anyway it, it ties into that very well something i was keen to ask you about was have you read andy clark's new book on the experience machine i have i had to because i had to write his blurb for it so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i remember that yes um what what, what were your thoughts on that <laughs> well, I loved it, but then again, I mean, I, I have to say, Andy Clark's a friend of mine, so I can't, so I, I, I have a conflict of uh, interest, or certainly a sort of biased perception. Yeah, I mean, I've said this before, and you know, I regard Andy as a brother in arms. So while I, while I tell the physics story, he tells the philosophy story, and it's the same story. Um, uh, you know, it could be a Stephen Grosberg story at some point. Um, so uh, I, I love the way he writes. Uh, he's, um, you know, I, he's sometimes criticised um, by other philosophers for a, a very familiar style of writing, which most younger philosophers not get away with. But because of his stature and his age and his wisdom, I think he gets away with uh, <laughs> with a style of philosophy which is I find very compelling, and I find him extremely fluent and you know expresses all the right ideas in the right kind of way with just an ounce or a, a you know a pinch of skepticism at every at every point. But I thought it was beautiful. I still remember the first time I read some of his work, and when I came across Four Ear Cognition, I remember thinking, "This this makes so much sense." Um, you know, who really are these embodied beings, extended minds? Um, you guys added an extra e in that paper, mortal computation. Would you mind reminding me what that was? Because for some reason, I oh, yeah, no, I was hoping you would do that as well. <laughs> for some reason, I just cannot recall it. But it was, I think, it was basal cognition. It was some sort of a. Um, 
a similar a synonym almost for basal cognition in but from a computational perspective um nevertheless a 4e cognition is something that is very prevalent among philosophy students today and the way they think about the mind what are your thoughts on that um well again um you know it is a, a style um of thinking which I, as you point out um is probably um the predominant style now since the turn of the century mm. um uh and you know it, it is something that is um certainly celebrated uh and um accommodated by the uh, by the free energy principle in particular active inference there's a reason it's called active inference there are several reasons it's called active inference um but one of the reasons is to get active um into the game um as a, an acknowledgement of the importance of inactivism um which is quite fundamental for open systems um you know if you want to understand um behavior and yeah. sense making um uh, in a situated uh, uh uh of a situated sort or um, um an embodied sort being you know one particular kind of situated uh, uh of situation um then you have to acknowledge there's a there's a, a reciprocal or a current coupling exchange between you and the situation uh and in one direction it's action and the other direction it's uh, perception um so you know the, the very mathematical the, the calculus um of active inference you know has to be courteous to the inactivist um, perspective um and you know and all of all of the ease if you like in one sense speak to different perspectives on that um on that reciprocal coupling the I'll manage to find your first e it's elementary elementary it's uh, cognition stands on fundamental functions and structures that enable acting and tracking aspects of a niche to ensure survival excellent right well, there you have it. <laughs> so there is there is the, the the eu guys added to the so not right. five, five e <laughs> right. good we just have to remember the other four. I have to confess, I, I can never remember. Yeah. And so, I, so I, 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 elementary, it'll be embedded, embodied, enacting, and extended. Yes, yes, um, yes. We got them all there, haven't we? Extend, yes, yeah. Perhaps the extended one is, is is sort of the exception there, and the, all the others, I think, are commonsensical. Um, but the extended, you know, that that is that, that's much more. Andy Clark designer environment sort of thing, which you know, um, does does my brain get into my mobile phone? At which point do I stop? I think that's a, that, that's an interesting issue, which again speaks to I would imagine the issues you discussed with Mike uh, Levin. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, in terms of uh, you know, at what point do you draw the boundary between a self-organizing multicellular system and uh, yes. you know, it's, uh, that computational boundary of a self? Which uh, well, I think this is the perfect time to go into that. That segment, I thought a nice way to conclude this conversation would be to tie into some of the other people you've worked with while discussing some of the differences. And that'll open me up in my future discussions with them to come back to these conversations. And then we can continuously have this loop, these strange loops, as Douglas Hofstetter once mentioned. We can just continuously talk about it and build upon it. Mark Solms, let's talk about him. Um, he now has what is known as the felt uncertainty principle. He talks about dreams how dreams relate to consciousness. How does your work converge with his and where does it diverge, if it does? 
Uh, again, I'm afraid you're going to have you're going to have problems finding points of divergence. Um, I know. Uh, so um, yeah, Mark, um, Mark, Mark's sort of half friend, half mentor. Um, um, I um, you I have a very friendly relationship with him, but I very seldom see him, but because he travels so much and he and he's so prolific. Um, but um, you know. For me, he's the person that introduced me um, in conjunction with Robin Carhart-Harris with, with his original work on sort of Freudian free energy. But in terms of neuropsychoanalysis and the, um, the really um, neuropsychologically grounded and biologically grounded aspects of um, psychoanalysis and how that was informed by, as you mentioned, dreaming, for example, um, but also generically more sort of consciousness research. You know, I, I owe a lot to Mark Soames. Um, he, uh, in, again, he's another brother in arms. So he, in, the, in the neuropsychoanalysis, sort of Freud and that kind of um, biologically and um, therapeutically informed kind of consciousness research, you know, he, he, I would regard him as you know, the person telling that kind of story. Um, concretely, the felt uncertainty just is the precision we were talking about before. Mm. So his focus is exactly on the cells of origin of those multiple projection systems that we were rehearsing before as the root of all evil in uh, Parkinson's disease through to uh, possibly uh, autism. Um, so, um, so he's, you know, he, his story um, has a particular flavour because it, it, you know, it's now reading the, um, the, 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 the this particular form of precision control or precision engineered precision engineered message passing in the brain. That's an Andy Clark phrase, um, but he's he's now um, really drilling down on that, um, and the way in which he is doing that, um, I think, has a you know a lot of potential for handshaking with the philosophy of self. I don't think here particularly the, the work of people like uh, Thomas Metzinger, um, who is developing another perspective, you know, other perspectives. You, but uh, Thomas is actually one of the people whose names I've got on this on this list to eventually ask you as well. <laughs> all right. I've got 10 um, names. It's not too many, don't worry. It's just 10. We'll probably do Thomas and and uh, Mark at the same time. Then, um, so that uh, you know, well, the reason I mentioned Thomas Metzinger is just that um, there's this notion of um, phenomenal experience um, resting upon the ability to modulate your synapses, um, which means that um, the source, uh, uh, which um, which can be read as a kind of mental action, which, is, for example, attention. But you know, you need to have these attentional or sensory attenuation, physiological or psychological mechanisms in order to dissolve phenomenal transparency. So I know I'm looking at something, and it's me looking at something. Um, you know, so um, is this an objective or is this a first person or is it indeed, can I even have zero person sort of, you know, non-dual kind of uh, you know, experiences? Um, but all of these questions rest upon the mechanisms that, that, that um, underwrite the ability to modulate via this precision control um, the 
belief updating and the sense making at some part of your of your um, deep neural neuronal network and um, so um what mark is saying is that the the very feeling read as um in a phonological sense so he's not talking about uh, um feelings in a folk psychological sense uh, and mark is an expert on this and you know he was you know, in terms of his work with uh, panslip and 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 the like he, you know, he knows all about the you know the basic uh, the basics of, of 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 emotions, but he's using feelings in a, in a very fundamental um, um, experiential sense that the actual feeling is only afforded by the affording of a precision to various messages um uh, or information processing so that 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 I, I think it's a lovely phrase that notion of felt uncertainty so uncertainty is just the converse of precision so you could have could have could have called it precision feel but uh, felt precision or uh, experienced precision uh, felt uncertainty is you know a very beautiful so I, I i i value that perspective not just because it is actually deeply grounded in neuropsychology and neurobiology and a wealth of clinical experience in people who have abnormal um, no abnormal experiences and altered states of consciousness um, but also because it is exactly what you would be looking for if you are just a mathematician applying the principles of bayesian filtering to a brain for example mm. yeah no it's 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 incredible i mean i think it was thomas nagel who was giving a speech and Mark was telling me the story about how he was on stage and, and Thomas mentioned, you know what, he thinks this guy, Mark, he's onto something. And, uh, and to, and to Mark, that was such high praise. He, he found that he, he was so honored to be mentioned by Thomas Nagel, this, this infamous philosopher, really just bringing him up at this, uh, at, at one of the conferences that happened. I think it was in Boston, actually. No, I haven't heard that story. Yeah, I yeah. So, that. I so, yeah, so Mark told me about that and he was, he was, he felt very honored because obviously when he brought up the fact that the, the source of consciousness, the hidden spring, as we might talk about it is, is within the brainstem, he felt very ostracized within the scientific community and people really, see, yeah. really believed he was really going far too, he's going too far. So for him to get that sort of recognition, it meant a lot to him and, and I'm happy for him as well. Because he's also mentored to me. He was part of when I wrote my dissertation. He he really helped me and uh, right. yeah gave me lots of comments. And he, I mean, he lives not too far from from where I am in South Africa. So um, yes. a lot of respect for Mark, and I appreciate his work very much. <laughs> well, it's good. It's nice for you to say that out loud on a, on a, on a podcast. And again, <laughs> it's from my point of view, um, he's a real player. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean. When, yeah, I do. Yes, I do get the sense he gets cross when people don't see that you know um, that this um, um, or they won't relax this cortex cortical centric view of consciousness. Um, but I, uh, who in my world he is the main player. Uh, so you know, it's, so I don't get this. Um, I don't have his frustration or paranoia so from my point of view he's the person you know who's talking about this in a very sensible way in a way that makes sense to, to patients but also um you know the, the, the you know the, the physics of sentience that people like me have to deal with um and, i think there's know. a there's a level of nuance you have to really to to understand what he where he's coming from i think if if someone just says he's talking about the ancient brain it's easy to make pre prejudiced judgments about this. Yeah, it's easy for you to just think, okay, he's just going too far. 
So I think there's a lot of nuance and he's just tiptoeing a line that people just don't really know enough to comment on appropriately. <laughs> right. That's my perspective. Well, I hope he watches this. <laughs> right. I'll send him a link. I'll send him a link. The, the next person, Carl, is, I mean, you've spoken about him already, but Michael Levin. Um, you actually got me into that tangent, as I told you, where we went down. He calls it the field of diverse intelligence. This group of thinkers, you, Chris Frith, Mark Solms, all of you guys coming at this in a very different way. How do you guys link and where do you guys diverge if you do? Well, I, I mean, I don't think I can add very much to your, your description or his <laughs> description. I mean, that's absolutely right. Um, um, it does remind me of something that Chris Fields uh, once said, which is our job is to dissolve those bright lines between uh, biology, physics, and psychology, and I would also add philosophy in there nowadays. Um, uh, you know, it's all the same thing, um, and so you know that that those multiple perspectives um, and that diversity, I think, is just an expression of that. That that's the job to be done. We we should not be considered as coming from diverse fields. We're all doing exactly the same thing, using exactly the same ideas. Um, in different experimental models or, or in different paradigms and possibly using different kind, different words. But in essence, we should knock each other's corners off and, ju and just be focusing on the, you know, the underlying, uh, the underlying principles of, you know, um, as a biologist, biotic self-organization um, or basal cognition or distributed intelligence or um, mm. um, mortal computation, uh, you know, however you want, you want to, to frame it. Um, you know, Chris would would say, yeah, this is just an expression of scale invariant quantum information theory. Mark would say, yeah, this is just and so on and so forth. It's uh, um, so I, you know, I, I I I couldn't add very much to it. You know, it's just interesting to reflect how we all got together. Mm. Um, uh, yes, it, it is interesting. What is funny is that um, this is not a sequential thing. So I didn't know that Mark and Mike were in correspondence um and i not i don't know whether mike knew that mark and i have you know quite a deep history um yeah. um you know sparse rich but deep um uh so it is interesting all these like-minded people certainly with the same kinds of aspirations already knew each other um mm. you know in a sort of decentralized and federated way of sort of uh, making connections and sharing views, uh, which we do. You know, there isn't a week that goes past where right? you get, you get a, an email from one of them. Usually, Mike, in fact, who's, who's the most energetic. And I'm chatting to Mike again next week. So, um, if there's any questions you have for him, just just let me know. I'll, I'll ask him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when when does he sleep? Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Um, I'm chatting to him next week. There's so many things we're going to chat about, but uh, honestly, we it, it's it's a great. When I chatted to him last, I think it was a, a couple months ago. I called it. It's almost like the Avengers of mind coming together. It's this is like you guys are the Avengers of neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, um, biology, just all coming together. And this is so epic for us to watch as outsiders. And 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 me personally talking to you guys, it's 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 such a privilege to be part of it in in a very non-direct manner <laughs> that's nice of you to say that yeah no i i love uh being part of this this sort of uh extended family this this um, this this circle um you know in fact in probably at the time you're you're going to be speaking to mike um 
I'll, I, I, he, he wants to talk to me about. He's, he's found a new a, a new sorting algorithm that, that has a kind of intelligence he wants to talk about. So he's always sending me little puzzles, and then Mark and I try to, to naturalize it from a, either a maths point of view or a uh, a, a neuropsych point of view. It's mm. a great little game. <laughs> the the other names, I mean, you've already touched on Chris Fields. I've got on the list here, Richard Watson. Um, very also converging, diverging, but for the most part converging. Yes, yeah. So uh, yeah, another small world thing. So Richard Watson is, is is a friend of Mike's, but I also I have now found out he's also a friend of um, my machine learning friend Chris Buckley at Sussex University. Yeah, it, it's just amazing how these little small worlds keep um, presenting themselves in in in, in you know. Um, in what should be uh, a, a predictable, I guess, given our, our common interests. So I, I don't think I've ever personally spoken to, to Richard, but in the past three weeks, I have been in vicarious email conversation with him via two completely independent, a dual root connection. Yeah. <laughs> who, who, who else was there? So Richard and Fields, who Chris else did you mention? What? Chris Fields. Well, you oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, it, watching you guys from the outside, it's amazing. You've also mentioned the other name on my list, Jerry Edelman. You've already spoken about him. Anything you want to add? <laughs> Not at this stage in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be another. Um, just for your entertainment. So, um, so um, Daniel Friedman and um, colleagues at the Active Inference Institute actually had um, um, a whole little session uh, devoted to the mentees of Jerry Edelman. Um, and it, the, for me, the most interesting aspect of that was the people who declined to accept the invitation to speak about working with Jerry Edelman. Uh, but you can watch a whole three, two or three hour YouTube <laughs> um, recorded live stream on the experiences of at least uh, three of us uh, working with Jerry Edelman. The, the person you want to get to talk about that though is Reed Montague. Okay. So Reed Montague, of um so reed um basically um sort of not tutored but sort of teamed up um with wolfram schultz um with the, the help of peter diane uh, in the uh, uh, you know it would be the late 90s to put the um um uh, an interpretation on wolfram's um discovery of dopamine discharges um that spoke to um, a certain kind of modeling, temporal difference modeling, uh, which subsequently became the reward prediction error uh, story uh, celebrated in, in neuroimaging, and that dopamine um, was crucially um, um, or complicit in forming these reward prediction errors. So a very famous story all started basically with actually, you could argue with Jerry Edelman and Reed Montague, um, but then uh, the, the deliciously dark stories about Jerry Edelman will be best evinced by Reed Montague's got some great stories, because Reed had to escape from Jerry Edelman to go and work with Terry Sanofsky at, uh, at the Sulk. Um, um, and uh, pursue his his work, um, and in that pursuing, uh, what arose from that was the reward prediction error story, uh, first articulated, I think, in bees with octamine, that that, that subsequently then empirically endorsed by um, uh, Wolfram Schultz's work, um, uh, and just as a, so. Um, 
just to close the um, uh, speak with small world story. I was actually Reed's replacement when I was seconded from my brain imaging job um, to Jerry Edelman uh, um, at a time when people um, Jerry Edelman was friendly with uh, my mentors back back in in London as a, as a young man. But if you want to get good Jerry Edelman stories. Ask Reed Montague and let me know. I love hearing the way he talks about it. I've taken notes. I've taken notes. The last two names I've got here, call before we close off, is Anil Seth and Daniel Dennett. Right. Well, Anil is another close uh, friend and colleague. He just works down in uh, you know um, in, in Sussex University, um, and um, you know, of course works next door to Andy Clark. And in fact, Anil was. Uh, so over the moon i've told this story lots of times i'm sure neil has as well but we were all um sequestered on a greek island during a medicaid which is a sort of mediterranean hurricane and this is a real hurricane uh so we we're sitting there um in a mathematics of consciousness uh symposium um with the proponents of integrated information theory and Jakob howie and uh colleagues from melbourne um with anil um, with I've, the waves. I've, I've heard the story, but I'm, I'm, but but please tell it because I think it's such a beautiful story. I'm excited oh, to. Which, which part? Which well, there are lots of stories from that. No, no, I've heard meeting, about, but... about Anil getting finally getting um, uh, Andy to join the team. Now I know the story, but I'm excited to just for the audience. Please go ahead. Right. Well, I know you, you've given away the punchline now. So <laughs> so. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> Neil was, was was entertaining us you know, by playing the piano um, in the middle of this hurricane outside. I repeat, literally, the, the waves were crashing up, so it just washed away all the beach furniture. Um, you just couldn't go outside. It was really quite frightening. Uh, but we were in this sort of you know, um, enclosure, um, um, this sort of like foyer overlooking the, uh, the little cliff and the beach. Um, and it was a surreal um, atmosphere, hard days thinking, little bit drunk and neil in, in in the in the fading light sort of playing the piano when he got this phone call which as you say was confirmation from the university of sussex that they had actually secured and uh contracted uh, a headhunting of andy clark from edinburgh down to sussex so uh and you know, neil was so delighted um and i suspect so was andy clark who i know i mean he loved edinburgh but Andy Clark just wanted to get back to surfing, uh, so he just wanted to try and get back to to uh, you know a place where he could go surfing. Now he and Alexa, his wife, did a lot of boat stuff in Edinburgh, but it's not surfing boat stuff. You have to be really down in Brighton to do proper surfing. So uh, both of them were well happy, um, and then. Um, uh, oh, you know, what are those? What are those drunken conversations between you guys when you're all together? These philosophers and neuroscientists. What is that like? I would love to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> um, yes, well, you know. Do you guys debate or do you find yourself agreeing more, more often than not? <laughs> well, the, those particular people, Andy Clark and uh, Anil and Jacob and myself, um, inevitably find ourselves agreeing. Uh, if you want an honest answer, we have a little bitch about people we don't agree with. But that's... that's that's for, for me and my friends, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, last last one on the list here is is Daniel Dennett. I, I had to. Put I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know Daniel Dennett uh, other than uh, vicariously. I met him on a few occasions via uh, um, vicariously through well 
on a few occasions um, with Andy Clark. Um, uh, but you know, I know him obviously by reputation. Um, uh, again. Um, probably not like Stephen Grossberg but uh, in the sense that Delaned has great acclaim but like uh, um, Stephen Grossberg I think his ideas are enduring and insightful and sometimes uh, mm. uh, until they are quickly accepted uh, you know um, revolutionary literally in terms of turning people around and making them change their mind uh, and much of the um, the Bayesian mechanics and the um, that I the story that I would tell uh, uh, as a physicist and a neurophysiologist, um, and the story that Andy tells in terms of predictive processing and uh, and the like, um, uh, are very sympathetic, I think, to to uh, Daniel Dennett's um, uh, formulation. So I, I would imagine he's going to be one of the good and greats of philosophy of of of, of this century. Well, I'm not quite sure where we are now, but certainly the past uh, half fifty years. I agree with you. I think I, I agree. I think so as well. Uh, Cole, are there any people you believe deserve sort of honourable mentions? I just I made a general list of people I know you've worked with. I added Daniel because I know you guys haven't, but I was just curious. Uh, people whose work you think we should look out for. People you think I should possibly interview. Um, any minds that come to mind that you think. Is bringing they're bringing this field even further than you wish it could go. There are lots of people come to mind, and the dangers, of course, and I the people I don't mention are going to get very very cross with me. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> so um, you know, I think in terms of talking in the way that we have been talking, um, you probably want to talk to people who have a philosophical training because I think that they they have the art of being able to express things in an accessible way, um, which sometimes people like me do not have. Um, uh, but you want to find philosophers who um, are also informed formally, mathematically, or all, all bi biologically. Um, and just thinking about sort of young people out there who are part of this more extended circle, but also have their own particular thing to bring to the table. Uh, people like Maxwell Ramstead would be would be um, uh, one person who you you might enjoy talking to. Um, I'm just thinking about sort of young people. I had a lovely session with Thomas Metzinger a couple of weeks ago, um, and he has some lots of really interesting things to say about his current project and um, minimal phenomenological experiences and the like. Um, but there's another very young person. So these are not good and great. These are people who are just starting and need a bit of encouragement. Um, so it would be Lars uh, Sandvid-Smith. I think you might enjoy talking to him. It's just that he comes to mind because his work is all about consciousness and it's all about precision control. And it's a very nice link between Thomas Metzinger and Mark Soames and Maxwell. Uh, as as the the uh, well Thomas Maxwell is clearly not the the new generation, but anyway, in in this field, uh, um, yeah. Uh, I, I, but I could go on. Uh, so please forgive me if I've because there'll be a hundred other people who should have. Uh, yeah, I, I, you've spoken to Jakob Howie. Um, no, not yet. No. Oh right, no. I mean, he would be the he would be another brother in arms, and he would give you. Um, um, another side of the coin another perspective uh, from andy clark for example so um i may be um joyfully and jokingly uh, I, I think that andy and jacob are in a race to write the most recent book on predictive processes <laughs> so uh, um I, I, so jacob's got a, a new book in preparation 
entitled Self-Evidencing. Um, again, speaking to many of the themes. And it was really um, Jacob's book, um, um, The Predictive Mind, that foregrounded the importance of felt uncertainty in using the semantics of precision in predictive processing, precision-rated prediction errors. So, you know, he would be an obvious person of, of a quite senior sort. He is in, uh, yeah, he's he's in Australia and Melbourne at the present time. Okay. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he'll have lots of favourite people. Yeah, I'm going to stop there because otherwise... <laughs> you know, I, I just, Andy, I'm and I, have to go. Andy and I were meant to chat a couple of months ago, but for some reason, I think one of, one of his emails went into my spam folder. Um, I, need, I, need to, I need to get back to that conversation with him. But look, uh, Carl, as always, this is, has been such an amazing journey. Uh, I continue to watch in, in awe, always inspired by you guys' work. Uh, please continue to, I mean, you're putting out close to 100 papers. I know you're just saying you're a part of it, but obviously to just be a part of it, you have to still put in some effort. And, and from our side, we appreciate it. Any final words, anything from your side you want to say to the Mind Body Solution listeners? <laughs> No, other than thank you. You're a very gracious host and uh, and interviewer. Um, so my normal thing is um, I'm trying to be recluse, so I, I just want to slide away into, into obscurity uh, after this very enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carl. Have a great evening, and I appreciate our round two. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.